0: All right, good morning, church. Um, as Pastor Howard just said, my name is Ramon Bellagamba. I reside in the North Parish, uh, where I attend the University City Community Group. And also, I co-lead the men's Bible study in the North Parish with Pastor Howard. And lastly, I'm on staff as a pastoral intern. Um, it's a privilege for me to be able to read the Word of God this morning. Um, it's from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Hear the Word of the Lord. you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by, this, by the Spirit. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning, Christ Central.
1: It's, um, it's a rare occasion that you get to preach immediately after having shaken every single person's hand in the room. We should design it to do it that way more often. It's kind of great. Um, but I'm Drew Martin, and it's, um, it's, it's something that I'm very excited about to be here with you during this year to prepare for this church plant. Oh, that's much better. Thank you. And um, in particular this morning, I'm really grateful to be able to turn to a passage like the one that we just heard in Ephesians chapter 2. The reason we chose this passage is that it makes sense that we're uh, celebrating a joining Sunday to turn to a passage of scripture that talks about the body of Christ and the hope and the peace that we have in the body, together, as we together are being built up. So that's why we're turning to this passage this morning. And in some ways for me, as the new guy, it's a little bit of a nerve-wracking thing to look at a passage that focuses on reconciliation in the church, in this church, where I'm coming into a place where y'all have been talking about this for a long time, and y'all know about this. And here I am, the new guy, trying to preach on this passage to you what you know about. And it's been a nerve-wracking thing for me this week. Um, In some ways, I know we've got a lot of Johnson and Wales students here, in some ways it reminds me of, you know, you invite someone from Johnson and Wales over for dinner, <laughs> and you're the one cooking, but that's, you know, you want them to be the one cooking, right? So uh, you, don't, you don't want to be baking the cake, you want them to bake the cake. So we uh, have actually gotten to know a few Johnson and Wales folks, I hope you all are paying attention to that cake part. <laughs> Next time you come over, just remember to, to bring those. but it, it does feel that way. It feels, It feels a little bit intimidating to be in this room, but here's the comfort that I've taken this week and the thing that I've been trying to remind myself is that the power of this message does not depend on me or my experience, but it depends on this word of God that we have heard this morning. Amen? So that's what I'm going to rest in this morning, and I hope that the Lord will speak to us from this word, a message of hope and peace that's experienced in the body of Christ. So will you pray with me, and let's ask him to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that does not remain hidden from us, but you have shown yourself to us in the person of your son, Jesus. And you have invited us into your presence this morning to hear from your word to us. And so this morning we pray that you would speak to us from this word and that you would open our hearts and that you would open our ears so that we could hear what you would have us hear this morning. Would you challenge us, and would you comfort us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is one of those passages that is really convenient and that it divides up nicely into three sections with three points. And so this morning, we're actually going to organize our points around these three sections. So verses 11 through 13, we're going to be talking about the hope, that we have because we have been reconciled to God. God has brought us near and therefore we have a hope. And then secondly, in the middle section, we're gonna look at the peace that we have because God has reconciled us to himself. We have peace with him and with one another. And then the final section, and I think this is the place that really ties it together, um, the final section of this passage talks about the place, the context, where do we experience this hope and peace? How do we experience this hope and peace? And it talks about the body of Christ that we're being built up to be. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And as we dive in and look at the hope that's in this passage, I think one of the most important things that we have to see is that what Paul does in these first verses is he's telling the people that if you want to know the hope that you have, you need to remember who you were before you had Christ. And so this passage is actually telling us if you want to know what hope you have for the future, you need to look back to the past and remember who you were. And one thing that's so important to keep in mind is that Paul is writing this letter to a group of Gentiles. So this is a letter uh, that's sent out to a bunch of different churches, including the church that's in Ephesus. And most of the churches that are in this area um, are, are filled with people who are not Jews. They weren't people who had grown up with the Old Testament. They weren't people who had grown up in God's family. They've been brought in. They're Gentiles. And so what Paul's trying to tell them is that you need to remember who you were if you're going to be able to appreciate the hope that you have in Christ. And so he uses this language, this powerful language, to remind them about who they were. Look at verse 12. It says, you were alienated from Christ, and you were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. There are insiders and there are outsiders, and you were outsiders. And the other thing he does, just to bring this home in a a physical, tangible, uh, visceral way, is he brings up this sign of circumcision. And it's this sign that marked insiders and outsiders. And so I actually wanna spend a few minutes this morning thinking about circumcision. And I realize that that's a funny sentence that I just (laughs) said, if you think, we're we're actually gonna think about circumcision. And there's at least a couple things about circumcision that we need to have in our minds if we we're to understand the power of what Paul is saying. So first, circumcision is a sign of membership. It marks off people who are in and out. And the second thing is that it's a bloody sign. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that you're not going to forget about. Um, if you are a convert into Judaism and you are circumcised, whenever you come into that faith, you don't forget that experience. Um, One thing I've thought about actually quite a bit is as a minister after Jesus, um, we don't have to do that anymore and I am so grateful that when someone comes to faith, we baptize them. (laughs) Because if no one else remembers it, the priest remembers that. It's a powerful sign and it's a sign that you don't forget. It marks who's in and who's out. And if we keep in, in mind the power of that sign and how tangible it was, we start to get a sense of how powerful it would be for, for Paul to remind the people that you who were marked off in such a powerful and tangible way as outsiders, now you're insiders. Now you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. And I think it's that blood of Christ in verse 13 that Paul doesn't want us to miss. That bloody sign in the Old Testament was something that was pointing to something bigger than just circumcision. It was pointing to something bigger than just the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It was pointing to the fact that there needed to be a sacrifice that could pay once and for all for us to be able to be brought in in the first place. And Jesus is the one who paid that sacrifice for us so that we could be brought in to be a part of the family of God. So if you keep those things in mind, you start to realize this is powerful language that Paul is using to tell the people that you are now in and you are no longer out. The Bible is actually filled with powerful images that are just like that. And if you just think about all the contrasts that the Bible uses to remind us of who we were in order to emphasize who we are. I mean, just think about some of those pictures that the Bible uses. You were dead in your sins and now you've been made alive in Christ. That's the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. You were slaves to sin that leads to death, Romans chapter 6, but now you are no longer slaves to sin. You've been made free in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that we are new creations and I think it's so easy for us to forget who we were, and what Paul wants us to remember is who we were so that we can remember more powerfully who he's made us to be. We are forgiven, we are alive, and we are new creations in Christ. I actually think if, if you wanted an example of an organization that gets this, I think Alcoholics Anonymous is actually one of the best examples of it. If you think, I mean, if you've ever been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, or if you've seen one on TV, you know how do those meetings always open? My name is Drew Martin, and I am an alcoholic. And then you say, not just who you were, not just that old status, but I've been sober for 30 days, a year, five years, 50 years. And there's something that's powerful about seeing that contrast between who you were and who you've been made to be that this passage wants us to remember. Don't forget who you were. Don't forget what Jesus has done in order to bring you close. He has shed his blood for you. And if you have faith in Christ, you are forgiven and you are no longer an outsider. I think one of the things about um, that Alcoholics Anonymous example that's really helpful is that it points to the fact that it's not just me saying these things to myself that makes them so powerful, but it's getting together in a group of people and saying them together. Um, I don't know, I know many of you are studying the book of First Peter in Bible studies in different parishes and community groups. Our, our group was studying it this week, and we were talking about that passage in chapter 1 where Peter's talking about suffering. And one of, the, one of the points that someone in our group made is that this message that Peter is giving about suffering and how God uses suffering in order to build us up, that as we endure suffering, we see how we've endured suffering and we have hope. And one of the things that someone in our group said was, you know, it's actually so much more powerful when you watch someone who's experiencing deep suffering. And they walk through it with hope. And you can actually see them doing it. When we see our brothers and sisters in Christ experiencing difficult things, and we watch them walk through that faithfully, it builds us up. And so it's not just us ourselves that need to have this hope, but it's we need to have this hope for one another, and we need to talk about it together. And so as, as we've walked in the last few weeks, it's been an interesting welcome to Charlotte for me. Um, it's been hard. As we've been walking through the circumstances of the last few weeks in Charlotte, in America, as we watch this outrageous election unfold, uh, we need a place where we can find hope, and we need to be reminded of who we were so that we can remember the hope that we have in Christ when we think about who he has made us to be now. In these circumstances that we're in, it, doesn't matter what, it does matter what happens to us but it doesn't ultimately matter because the Lord can sustain us through these things because of what Jesus has done for us. So this passage is telling us that we need to have hope, Um, but it's also showing us how we need to have peace with God. And as Paul addresses the peace that we're supposed to have, he actually talks about several different questions to help us to understand that. He talks about where the peace comes from. He talks about how we get the peace, and he talks about who we have the peace with. So look with me at verse 14 and and pay attention to the language that Paul uses in verse 14. He says, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Where does the peace come from? The peace comes from Jesus. Amen. And do you see how Jesus has brought the peace? He has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. In fact, in verse 16, it says he is killing the hostility. So I think we need to think a little bit about what that hostility is that Jesus is destroying. What is the hostility that Jesus has broken down? And if you think for a second about who God is, I think you can start to get a sense of the hostility that exists between sinful people and that holy God. I mean, God is perfect. He's holy. He's all-powerful. And he's almighty. And who are we? If you think about how far we fall short of that God, and specifically how our sin is such an affront to the holiness of that God, you start to get a sense of the hostility that exists between us and God, naturally speaking. And Jesus, who was himself fully God, willingly and lovingly came and suffered so that that dividing wall of hostility could be torn down and that we could be restored to this God who loves us and created us. That is the peace, and that is how it's obtained. And so when Paul talks about abolishing the law of commandments through the cross, what he's saying, he's not saying there's any problem with the law. He's not saying that there's anything bad about the moral teachings of the Old Testament. What he's saying is that Jesus has abolished the penalty for sin that used to condemn us through that law. The problem isn't the law. The problem is that we disobeyed the law, and Jesus has taken the penalty for our disobedience, and he has put it on himself. And so we have peace with him. And the thing about this passage that is perhaps the most striking thing is that because of the peace that we have with God, the peace that we have with God, not just I, we have peace with one another. If you think for a second about the Old Testament, I mean, just remember that Paul is writing this letter to Gentile people And the entire Old Testament is a story of a holy war between Jewish people in the promised land and Gentile others. If God can tear down that dividing wall of hostility, he can tear down the disunity between anybody. And so when we read in that famous verse in Galatians chapter three, verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free, we could just keep that on going. There is nothing that can separate us from one another if we have faith in Christ and have been set free from the things that separate us from God and we've been set at peace with God. There is nothing that can divide us. I think the thing that's hard, I think this is, I mean, if I'm honest, for me, uh, this is where doubt starts to creep in. I don't know about for you when I hear a message that says, we're called as Christians to be at peace with one another, and then I think about the reality that is the church so often, why why doesn't it look like that? I mean, do you wonder why? Churches are, I mean, that's one of the places where there's the least peace. There's so many disagreements in churches. And you know, I mean, that's within a church. But you know the line about churches on Sunday morning, right? This hour is the most what? It's the most segregated hour that exists in American Week. Why is that? I think this passage actually helps us to understand why that is. And I think it actually ought to be a really challenging passage for us. I think one of the reasons that we don't actually experience the peace that we're supposed to and the hope that we're supposed to is that we don't pay nearly enough attention to the end of this passage, verses 19 through 22. And what verses 19 and 22 show us is that it's actually in the body of Christ by living with one another and actually working through the things that separate us, actually engaging the disagreements. That's the place that God actually gives us hope and peace when we see what he can do in the midst of that. Because we so often aren't willing to do that, we don't get to experience this peace. Um, (laughs) This week, as I've been thinking about this picture of the body of Christ being united together as 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 the illustration of peace and as the place where we see God's hope and peace, I've been thinking about this um, story that's been in the news, I don't know if you've seen it, about this boy named Zion um, who had double hand transplants. Have you seen this story? Um, if you haven't seen it, it's worth getting on YouTube and grabbing a box of Kleenex later this afternoon and, um, and watching it, but it's an, it's an amazing story. So you have a boy who's born, uh, he's, he's born healthy, and then when he's about two years old, he develops this infection. And as a result of the infection, his immune system starts fighting his organs. And so his kidneys fail, and he ends up having to have his hands, both hands amputated, and both feet amputated as a two year old. And it's just, I mean, you just think about what his family must have gone through and what it's like for him to grow up um, with that sort of loss. I mean, how would you do that? It's so, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a heartbreaking story. Um, but at the same time, his heartbreaking is amazing because he's given a kidney transplant. That, but more amazing than that, he is the first example ever of a child who has successfully undergone a hand transplant. And the reason I think it's such a powerful picture of the body of Christ for us is that when you look at his hands, you can tell that they aren't his hands. But at the same time, they are his hands. And they work. And there's something about that that's, that's like the body of Christ. We, When you think about this image of there being a head and a nose and feet and hands all kind of tied together, there's something about it where you feel like that's, it's not going to look quite right. But it's beautiful because they all work together. And I think one of the other things about the story that's really amazing is that his body naturally fights off those hands. It doesn't want those hands. In fact, they have to give him medicine to suppress his immune system so that his immune system doesn't treat them as foreign and other. And it's through taking those medic- that medicine that he's actually able to, for those hands to be connected, for them to graft onto his body and for them to work. And I think right there you have a picture of what God has done in our hearts through the Holy Spirit in bringing us to peace with one another. It is not natural for us as human beings to get along with other human beings. We are sinful, and we don't want to. And not only that, we have all kinds of differences. Um, So it's not just sin, it's just styles and backgrounds and cultures. It makes it hard for us to get along, but what God does in the gospel is he makes it possible, not only for our sins to be forgiven, not only for the hostility that exists between us naturally to be removed, but he takes all those things that make us different and he works them together so that they create something beautiful because they work together. And so it's actually this last part of the passage that shows us that. Um, if you look at verse 19, what you see is that Paul's using different kinds of language. And in verse 19, he uses the language of a people in order to show us how he's bringing us together. It's not just many people's. It's not just different individuals, but now you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, and you are members of the household of God. And It's that language of citizens that I think is really helpful for us to see. We're not just residents, we are citizens. And one of the things that's really helped me to understand that is moving in um, to this neighborhood in West Charlotte called Enderley Park. And maybe you live in a neighborhood that has this kind of neighborhood association or connection in the community, but it's been really neat to come into this community and go to a neighborhood association meeting and see people who want to come together to make their community a better place. And one of the things the neighbors there have done that's been really, I mean, humorous and um, powerful to me is that there's all these signs around our neighborhood, and I think it's because there's all these developers who are coming in and trying to buy up houses, and then flip them and resell them. So they've put up all these signs that say, we buy houses for cash. And so what, and I realize there's some, there's some politics here and some economics, and I realize this is a complicated issue. So let, don't get distracted on that part. We can talk about the politics and the economics of economic transition in neighborhoods another time. Here's the, here's the point. What the neighbors have done is they've gone around and they've taken all these signs. And where it used to say, we buy houses, they've crossed that part out. And they've said, we thrive in houses. We need houses. And then they've drawn pictures of people on the signs. That there are human beings that live in these houses. And so for me as the new neighbor coming into this neighborhood, it's been a beautiful thing to see how these these people here want to remind themselves of the community aspect by actually changing the signs and drawing pictures of the neighbors on the signs to remind people that we are a community. We have obligations to one another. We have duties and responsibilities. And that if we don't um, remind each other of those things, then we're going to lose what we have here. Um, So so Paul uses this language of a people and citizens to remind um, his listeners, to remind us that we together are a people. But he doesn't stop at people. He also uses the language of a place. Now watch what he does here. Look at verses 19 through 22 again, and look at the the specific kind of language he, he uses to describe the place that he has called them to be. What kind of place is it in verse 19? It's the household of God. Okay, so so what kind of household is this? It's a household in verse 20 that is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So this is a household that is built of people and not just people today, but people in the Old Testament and upon Jesus, and upon us. And then he gets more specific. Look at verse 21. What kind of building is this? A holy temple in the Lord. And then in verse 22, it's a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see what he's saying? He's saying that this thing that used to be a place, this temple, the place where God was present to the people in the Old Testament, is now Us, as a body, and if you want this this imagery to land home, you've got to remember the Old Testament. I know some of you remember the temple in the Old Testament, but let me remind us. The temple in the Old Testament was a place where God was present so powerfully that there's a room in the middle of the temple called the Holy of Holies, and you don't go in that room because God's presence is so powerful and so holy that you can't even actually go in that room because you will fall down dead. And so if you remember the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, there's this very elaborate ceremony that they go through every year where the high priest washes in all these different ways and he goes through all these different ceremonies so he can prepare himself to repent of his sin in order to go into that presence of God in order to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And just to paint the, the picture just one more step, The people were so fearful of going into that presence that they actually tied a rope around the priest's leg so that in case he died while he was in the room, they didn't have to go in after him to get him out. So they could pull him out of that room. So what Paul is saying is that holy presence that was in this room in the Old Testament is now here with us when we gather together. That is a beautiful picture of God's presence with us as his people. And it's not just with me, it's with us. It's not just with you, it's with us together that God is present. So Paul uses the language of a people, and he connects it to a language of a place. But here's the part that I think is most important. He uses the language of a process. And so this peace and this hope that we're supposed to experience is ours. We have it. Jesus has nailed our sin to the cross. And if you have faith in Christ, it is no more. Sure, so it's in the past. But our experience of this is something that's ongoing. It's something that we walk in. It's something that we experience over time. It's a process. And look at the process, In verse 21, it says, we are being joined together. So the process is we being joined together. It's actually us being in relationships with one another, dealing with our mess, seeing each other's sin, calling each other out, being willing to be called out, living together with other sinners, that process that God gives us to actually experience the peace that we have in Christ. And he goes on, he says, that's how you grow into it, verse 21. That's how you're built together, verse 22. This is how we experience hope and peace. And I think the reason that we so often in the church fail to experience the hope and peace that is offered in the gospel is that it's, we don't want this process. We don't want to do this together. And one of the reasons I'm so grateful to, to spend this year preparing to plant a church in West Charlotte is to be part of a community that loves this process and is committed to this process. And so my call this morning for us, I, I think there are probably some folks here who have watched this service. Maybe you're visiting this morning and you watch the service of people coming up to the front. And you've heard this message of being part of the community. And I hope that you would hear in this passage and as you watch this process going on that you would hear an invitation to come and be a part of it. That there's a beautiful thing about acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of a relationship not only with God, but with other Christians. And so we would love for you to join with us, to be a part of this body. And for the rest of us, I think there's a call here to engage this process, um, to come to these discussions on Wednesday night and be ready, to be uncomfortable, to put yourself out there, and not just on Wednesday night, but as we gather together in community groups in all sorts of different ways, there's so many ways that we as the body of Christ are called to grow together and to experience this hope and this peace. We need each other. That's the point. We need each other. And actually, I think that's, that's the, the place where I want to close. Is actually something that Kelly Brown said in our new members class last Sunday. And I don't know if you, when you said this, I don't know if you knew um, how much this was going to stick. But this was, I thought this was great. Um, Kelly was talking to us about the music ministry. And she was talking about how um, there are so many talented musicians in the church, but the most important quality that you need if you want to be effective in the music ministry is not just the ability to sing or play an instrument. Do you remember, you remember saying this? The most important thing that you need is the ability to sing in a group. And I, you know, I, I didn't know that they were, we were going to have. We're, I didn't know we we're going to have this hallelujah song. We're all singing in parts, right? That was perfect. It was like the best sermon illustration I didn't even plan on. But the, the, the way it works is, you can sing by yourself all you want, but if you get everybody in a room going together in their own parts, sticking to their part, but sticking to their part with the group, now you got something beautiful. And that is the picture of the body of Christ that we are called to be. In this passage, teaches us that we're called to love. The way that we experience the hope and the peace of Christ is by living in community together and reminding ourselves of these things that are true. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to remind us that they're true and to commit to doing that to one another. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you don't just teach us the truth in your word and then leave us alone to figure out how to live. But you have given us a family, a body of Christ, a church, where we can experience that love. And so this morning I pray that you would give us a longing desire to do the difficult work that it takes to be part of your body. To not just tolerate one another, but to love one another and to remind each other of the things that we know to be true. And I pray this morning that you will continue to do that as we worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.